episode 57, Flagged. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a June 18th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Almost 150 years ago, massive flags of brilliant red and blue led Kansas boys into battle in Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma during the American Civil War. Exposed to rain, bullet holes, and blood, these flags did not fare well in battle, and did even worse following the war's end when they were mothballed and rolled on poles. Today, curator Blair Tarr tells us about two such flags that were recently conserved, revealing their intricate design for the first time in over 100 years. Conservation technician Nikayla Zimmerman tells us what goes into repairing a fragile flag big enough to fill a room. Shipped to a secret laboratory in Maryland, these flags required the meticulous piecing of hundreds of tiny fragments. What kind of person is willing to do that? Find out when we discuss the science of flag conservation. Finally, William Allen White comes knocking at your door and taking a step that is new when we connect this Emporia newspaper editor to the television series Three's Company. Was White the inspiration for Mr. Furley, the loudly dressed ladies' man and landlord? But first, flag. Good afternoon, Blair. Good afternoon, Merle. Today we're going to be talking about uh, two large Civil War battle flags that belong to Kansas units. Uh, these flags have been in the museum's collection for probably over 100 years, um, but recently we've had uh, the first opportunity to take a look at them in quite some time. And we'll explain why in just a moment, but first, I want to get back to a little, or I want to get to a little background on the flags. Okay. Um, Blair, could you bl- briefly describe what the flags look like? Certainly, that's easy enough. There are two different types of flags here. The one that's for the 1st Kansas Battery and Artillery Unit is a national flag, and that's pretty much what you'd expect. It's the stars and stripes as the blue field, although it has only 34 stars, but that field also has something unusual in it. It's, it's an artillery unit. It's got two cross cannon in the middle of the field, uh, and that's embroidered, which is kind of interesting in itself. Uh, the other one is from the 2nd Kansas Cavalry, and it's a regimental flag. And it's essentially a large blue flag, has the American Eagle in the center of it. And these are very typical flags. They're both very large flags. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're big. Uh, the Army regulation for the time was that they would were to be 6 foot 6 inches by 6 foot. And these may Jeez. even be a little bit bigger than that, but not much bigger. Any idea who would have made these? Would these have been just provided through standard, you know, like made through Army channels and issued to the units? Or did they go out and find a seamstress to make them? Now, most of them, uh, there were flags that were made by people in local towns that were sent off by uh, companies were raised, say, in Lawrence or Topeka. And some of the ladies would sometimes make flags. But these these flags in particular were probably made by a company either in New York 
there's one in Cincinnati too, I believe. I'm not quite sure where these were made, but the style of the eagle that's painted on the regimental flag, we can sort of tell you see it in several other states. So it's obviously done by the same artist. These flags are commonly referred to as battle flags. Were they actually carried onto the battlefield, Blair? Because they seem really big, and they seem like they would have been difficult to manipulate on a battlefield. They are, but you have to remember uh, what, what conditions were usually like on a battlefield, particularly if you were dealing with large numbers of men and regiments. These flags were the way to identify a regiment on a battlefield, particularly after shots had been fired, whether by gun or artillery, quickly become smoke-filled. These things stood out. And to the officers, who were in the rear, of course, uh, <laughs> this was so they could see where those flags were, what position they were holding, and they could therefore direct the course of the battle and issue orders appropriately, knowing where a certain regiment was. So like you talked about, these flags had a utilitarian function. Um, but they also had kind of a ceremonial or inspirational function as well, right? I mean, it, wasn't it a bit of an honor to be the guy who carried the, the flag during the battle? It, it was quite an honor. It was a deadly honor, uh, but it was quite an honor. They usually took a corporal from each company, and one of those corporals would be the one who would actually carry the flag. The other corporals would be alongside since with their weapons since the flag bearer himself couldn't carry a weapon. He was uh, kind of defenseless. Yes, he was, but he had those corporals alongside him who also had the uh, dubious honor if the flag bearer was shot, which was usually a good bet because the enemy would try to shoot the flag bearer because that would mean the flag would go down. And you could disrupt the whole communication You could disrupt things, system. but that was why the other corporals were there as well, not just as a defense for the flag bearer, but if he fell, one of them had to pick up the flag. Now for the 8th Kansas Infantry, when it was in the Battle of Chickamauga, this is where we have one good account of how this worked. Uh, there are nine corporals there, I believe, altogether. By the end of the battle... Four of them are dead, three are wounded, and only two of them get through unscathed. And I forget how many of them actually carried the flag at one point, but I think at least four or five of them carried the flag. So it's safe to assume several of these corporals were literally watching the corporal in front of them get shot yes. or killed. Yes. And then they got to take over the exact yes. same job he just yeah. had. Yeah. Wow. So it took a certain amount of courage, bravery, craziness, I'm not <laughs> sure, but, it, but yet it was considered a distinctive honor because of the importance the flag had to those men. They just had to keep the flag standing upright and so it could be seen. There are names printed on each of these flags, um, names such as Cane Hill, Arkansas, Newtonia, Missouri, and Fort Wayne, Oklahoma. Why are towns in Oklahoma and Missouri referenced on a Civil War battle battle flag, Blair? The Civil War didn't take place in these locations. It happened in places like Vicksburg, Mississippi, and Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Not so Why are we talking about Oklahoma? <laughs> Not so fast, hard attack breath. <laughs> 
we did have fight the war out here. In yeah. fact, uh, quite a bit of fighting actually took place west of the Mississippi River, or what we call the Trans-Mississippi Theater of the war. Uh, the main difference is is that we don't have the major battles like we do, like Gettysburg or Vicksburg or Shiloh or Antietam or Chickamauga. We have much smaller battles. Maybe Wilson's Creek might be an exception in Missouri. It'd be a little bit larger. So when you're talking these aren't major battles, they're not major battles because there was the same amount of troops or because they weren't strategically as significant? It's probably better to say it's be, they're not major in the sense of having the number of troops. It's not so much that there isn't some strategic importance to it. Uh, take the case of fighting to keep Missouri out of the Confederate hands. Missouri, of course, was a slave state before the Civil War. Of course they were. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the population of Missouri, the majority, some say as much as 60%, was pro-Union. They had a government at the top, beginning of the war that had a governor and several other state officers who were pro-Southern. And so there is quite a division there in Missouri. It tends to remain in Union hands for most of the war, some exceptions. Uh, some parts of the state uh, fall into Confederate hands. But the thing is, the Confederates are always trying to take Missouri again because they do recognize it as one of their own states as well. Missouri actually did send, I think, two senators and a few representatives to the Confederate Congress back in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, the Price Raid that goes across Missouri in 1864 and winds up in Kansas. Uh, one of the objections was to put the governor in exile, who is still pro-Southern, back it's in so weird seat to think of, of yeah, back in back in Jefferson City, and they don't do that. They don't get a chance to really do that. Uh, but it's so weird to try. think of you know people trying to put the Missouri governor in exile. Yes, <laughs> Missouri actually has two governors during that time. One a Confederate that's in Arkansas most of the time, and the other one is a pro-Union one who is in Jefferson City. So is that um, is that what the first Kansas Battery and the second Kansas Cavalry is that why they have like Springfield, Missouri on there? Were they there to sort of support the Union-friendly um, Missouri government? That's well, that's one way of putting it. They they are there to fight and keep the Confederates at bay in Missouri, at least, and in in other states as well, because they all fought. Uh, in Arkansas and also Oklahoma or with the Indian Territory as it was called then. They are trying to keep order and try to keep Confederate influence down in these places and of course the more territory you control the more you squeeze the Confederacy mm -hmm. and that is important just as important west of the Mississippi as it was east of the Mississippi. These flags have recently returned from a laboratory in Maryland where they were conserved Prior to their conservation, do you know? Did you know what the flags looked like? Had you ever seen them before? Uh, not unfurled, because <laughs> that's what was. I mean, that's yeah. what the situation was, was. They were rolled on their poles. Yes, that's that's the big problem. Uh, right after the Civil War, uh, most of our flags that we have were turned over to the state in a great ceremony here in Topeka on the Fourth of July in 1866, and they were immediately rolled up and put in cases somewhere. They were probably at a variety of locations. First at wherever the adjutant general's office was at that time. 
they wound up in the capital eventually in cases before they finally wound up being turned over to the Historical Society in 1905, although we were in the capital at that time. Mm-hmm. They may have been unfurled a few times. We don't know when exactly, probably in 1905 when they were turned over to us. They may have been unfurled again, at least slightly, in 1960. And when we moved out to this building that we're in now, uh, I've been around long enough that I helped pack them for the move. And I got to see them still furled and still crumbling since a lot of them are silk. They don't stand up very well. So from our point of view, we really only had images and ideas of these silk flags falling apart We've actually been kind of lucky, though, as we've been getting them unfurled because they really don't show as much damage. Sure, the silks have been splintered in some ways, but most of them are far more intact than we really anticipated. We really thought that they would be in worse shape than they were. Well, they're quite stunning to look at. I mean, they really, they've retained their color. They're quite brilliant. You see a lot of really interesting stains on them, and you have to wonder, you know, are the the stains just from moisture? Are they... Stains from a uh, from a um, flag bearer that had a rough go at it. It's always possible. Blair, could you tell us a little bit about um, what the Save the Flags project is and how that's related to um, the return of these two flags from the laboratory? Well, Save the Flags is something that I think just about every state is doing. They all use the same title, Save the Flags. It's a rather expensive process to go through and conserve these flags and preserve them for... Well, for eternity, for all practical purposes, we're we're in the business to outwit time. We are trying to raise money to get these flags conserved, treated so that they can at least be seen again, at least so we can get photographs, get their images out on the Internet, or use them for exhibits or even have uh, for publications. Uh, It is, as I say, an expensive process. When we started doing this about 10 years ago, these large flags, these six-foot-by-six-inch flags, (laughs) didn't quite say that right, but you know what I'm saying. They're big. They're big. They can fill a room. Yeah. It cost us about $15,000 to just conserve one of them. And now it's closer to twenty and twenty-five thousand dollars. Everything goes up in price as time goes on. Uh, we've got a number of them done. I'm not quite sure what the exact number is, but I think it's around thirty-four now out of about seventy Civil War flags. So, if somebody wanted to contribute to the Save the Flags project and they wanted to help um, restore some of the flags that we haven't yet seen ever, yes, how would how would they do that? Uh, well, the probably best way to do it is go right to the website of the Kansas State Historical Society and put "Save the Flags" in on the search engine. It will take you to a well, take you to a list. But that right at the top of that list is a page you can click on, and it will tell you more about "Save the Flags" and tell you how you can contribute. Uh, you can always call the museum. Uh, as for me, Blair Tarr, and I'll be happy to talk to anybody about the flags. <laughs> uh, we'll really be happy to see your wallet too. It'd be nice to <laughs> it would be great to get all these flags done before the end of the Civil War sesquicentennial. That's right, the sesquicentennial. Yeah. All right, Blair. I just have one last question. Uh, like we talked about, these flags basically they're red and blue, making them pretty visible. Which is their point on the battlefield is to be visible. Yes. Um, if you could pick a color for your flag, what would it be? I have some suggestions. 
One thing, I would not use white. I think that could create a lot of confusion about whether uh, my group is uh, signaling to go forward or surrendering. <laughs> Secondly, I would probably use the color black with my flag because studies have shown that black is an intimidating color. Plus, the enemy might assume that I'm either carrying the plague or that my unit is comprised of pirates. Okay, well, I would probably personally, well, personally, I'd probably use a black and gold flag since that's being a Pittsburgh uh, fan, and I mean Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, not Pittsburgh, Kansas. Probably would have the Penguin logo on it, maybe, but that's for those of you who have no interest in pirates, that's... (laughs) I'm not knocking your hockey team, but how intimidating is a a flag with a penguin on it? I don't know. Some of those penguins can get very vicious. It's... (laughs) I, but anyway, I have a few comments I would like to make about your suggestions, though. Just okay. the white the white flag would be sort of interesting because that was actually a problem for the Confederates. Did they really use white flags? They, well, yeah, sort of. Uh, the flag the flag that everybody thinks of as a Confederate flag with the St. Andrews cross, the X, mm-hmm. isn't really one of their national flags. It's a battle flag that was made popular by the Army of Northern Virginia and others used it or variations of it. What they used at first as a national flag was what we call the stars and bars and it has a blue field with stars and then three bars rather than stripes, red, white, red, and they used this first. Well, the only problem is it does look a lot like the stars and stripes when you're on the battlefield. Yeah. So there was a little confusion with that. And you got to really iron out the technicalities with flags. Yeah. So they went to a second one, which did have the Army of Northern Virginia battle flag up in the corner instead of that blue field with the stars, but the rest of the flag was white. They called this the Stainless Banner, banner which is not terrible looking, but again, if the flag is not being blown outright and you can't tell that that field is there, it looks like a white flag of surrender. So the Confederates have a problem. As for your black flag, though, you know, that that is sort of a flag that they say Quantrill wrote under the black flag. Really? Well, Uh, I'm not using the same flag as Quantrill. Because the black flag has sort of, it it is sort of like the pirates, actually, in a way, uh, that it is a flag of an organization that's really not militarily recognized as a true military unit, mm-hmm. but sort of a renegade unit. So and you, that's not necessarily, and it also indicates the sort of fighting that goes on. They don't necessarily use the black flag, but they, it's called riding under the black flag. It's, they might not literally do that, but they are sort of I see. renegades or guerrillas or some other form. So if I use the black pla- black flag, I really do have to have pirates. You do, or else you have cut to have control. No, but <laughs> All right, Blair. Well, thanks for telling us about these uh, recently conserved uh, Civil War battle flags, and thanks for telling us a little bit about the um, the function of color yes. on a flag. I didn't even get to tell you about vexillology. What's that? That's the study of flags. Wow. <laughs> well, we can say that for the next podcast, oh, Blair. <laughs> Good morning, Michaela. Hi, Merle. 
Uh, you were the museum's conservation technician, and uh, you sort of traveled with these flags as they went to Maryland to receive treatment. You kind of had eyes on on the whole process. Am I right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so we're just going to find out a couple questions about uh, what it takes to actually uh, conserve a Civil War battle flag. Um, what did these flags look like before they left the museum here, before they went to conservators? Well, at the museum, they had actually been rolled on their staffs for decades. Mm -hmm. So that Probably was known as furled. Furled, that's right, on their staff. And then they were stored in archival tubes. So we really couldn't tell what the overall condition of them was because they're too fragile for us to enroll without potentially damaging them more than they already were. But from what we could tell, the way they were, um, there was a lot of shattering of the silk, which is just where splits form in the silk. It's kind of inherent to weighted silk. Um, and then bits were starting to flake off from that. The painted areas where usually they paint on the battle honors and, and stars, things like that, um, and sometimes larger designs, they were curled and flaking off. Um, so we knew from what we could see that they were in pretty bad shape, but of course we couldn't tell what the middle of the flags looked like here. A lot of the problems you're talking about are fairly common across the boards with a lot of Civil War battle flags in That's different institutions, isn't it? That's true. Just about, I think, probably in every state museum that you know was involved in the Civil War that had units that fought in the Civil War have these flags, and they all have the same condition problems. Because mm -hmm. they're all, the majority of them are made of silk, which is a pretty unstable material. Right. Usually they were silk or wool, and the wool holds up a little better, but then with wool you also have the potential for a lot of pest damage. So Yeah. So you get these fragile flags go out on a battlefield where they get shot up, yeah. rained on. Bled on in bled some on. cases. <laughs> yeah. 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 The flags were treated by uh, Textile Preservation Associates, or TPA, in Keatesville. Is that right? That's right. Keatesville, Maryland. Um, they were actually sent there uh, in December of 2007, and they've been there for the pa they've been there there for about five months, and they've recently come back to us. That's right. Um, Nikayla, and you were actually you went out to visit them while the flags were there. Mm -hmm. So uh, be honest, Nikayla, did these people actually know what they were doing? Yeah, they know what they're doing. <laughs> they've been doing this for... This ain't their first rodeo? It's not their first rodeo, no. Uh, they've been doing it for over 20 years, and this is like their their um, their thing. They've treated other kinds of textiles, you know, like clothing, stuff like that, but for the most part, you know, they're in Maryland. That's, you know, right smack dab in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> so they have treated a lot of Civil War battle flags, and they know exactly what they're doing. So... So we're looking, we're looking here at two large silk battle flags, the first Kansas Battery and the second Kansas Cavalry. What exactly were, was done to these flags to stabilize them? Well, the first thing they had to do was unfurl them and remove them from the staffs because the staffs, of course, are made from wood, and you don't want silk with wood. Wood is acidic. It off-gasses, and that causes even more damage to the flags. Um, after they were taken from the staffs, then they could do an, more of an overall assessment of what kind of condition they were in. And actually, ours turned out to be in a little better shape than we were anticipating when they got them unfurled. Um, so after they unfurled them, they um, vacuumed the surface. And this is not like taking out your hoover and just <laughs> sucking the dirt off the top, you know? It's a very delicate process. It's done with low-section vacuum cleaners and, and usually some sort of a protective barrier, like a netting, to keep um, little bits from being sucked up into the vacuum. Then the smaller pieces can be preserved and reunited with the rest of the flag. Um, then after it's surface clean, they humidify it to relax creases and um, 
On the second Kansas flag, the painting had bloom, which is kind of a white, kind of a white fluffy looking accretion. Like a fungus or a mold. Yeah, that, that's on the paint. And so it was noticeable enough that it had to be cleaned off. So in addition to being treated by the textile conservers, the painting itself on that flag was treated by a paintings conservator. And they reattached small fragments of the paint areas with basically <clears throat> band-aids. They're not, you know, it's not like literal band-aids, but they're little pieces of stable text, which is kind of like pantyhose. And then they're attached with adhesive, and that holds the, the pieces into place. So that it looks. So let me just get this straight. They're, they're using band-aids and pantyhose? Band-aids and pantyhose, spit and water. <laughs> That's how you treat a flag. <laughs> not literal bandage, not literal pantyhose, but it's the same kind of concept. I'm tracking. Um, and so that, that holds the small little pieces into place so the flag looks more like a hole, like it would have been, you know, at the time it was made. And then the first Kansas is fragile enough. It's actually sandwiched between two layers of the stable text. It's just cut in a big rectangle and sewn together to hold everything into place. That's referred to, that's known as encapsulation. I'm just trying to visually describe the complexity to this. When they are unfurled, there is fragments of a flag, right? Yeah. And it's essentially like putting a puzzle back together. It really a is. cloth puzzle. Yeah, and we're not talking about, you know, like a hundred piece puzzle with great big chunks. We're talking about like a ten thousand piece puzzle with chunks of various sizes. They're everything from, you know, you may have bigger pieces, but you also have teeny tiny pieces that I actually watched um one of the conservators, that's her favorite part, is putting the pieces back together. She loved puzzles as a kid, and it's just kind of carried over into her job. And I watched her take a piece from Claire Down. It was laying Claire Down at the bottom of the flag, and she found its exact location in the top part of the flag. It just fit in. The edges were perfect. She just slid it right in. Do these conservators have any... Um forensic capabilities? I mean, you were telling me some stories of uh, additional information that they were able to... Um, pull from the flags as they worked on them. Can they authenticate flags or, like, you know, provide additional information? Well, they, they've they treated enough flags. They kind of can tell by materials and the aging of the materials if something is, like, legitimately a, a Civil War flag or if it was something made after the fact to, you know, commemorate or just to replicate something that's been lost. So they can do that in the lab. But they also work with, um, with other scientists who then they can take materials from the flags and send them to these scientists, and the scientists can do analysis to determine if the flag was used in a particular battle or you know what its what its story was. It helps you know authenticate it. Um, they treated a flag from a unit in Maine that actually fought at Gettysburg, and the museum in Maine thought they had a, a replica of the original. And after doing this kind of analysis, they found that it was actually the flag that was on the battlefield at Gettysburg. So I mean, that's, that's a, amazing. That's an amazing find. Yeah. yeah. And our flag, if you look at um, our first Kansas. The fringe around the edges is silk. It's very, very fine. And if you look closely at it, there is particulate matter in that fringe, like little bits of wood and dirt and stuff like that. And if we combed it and saved that and sent it off, we could find out, you know. You could do an analysis to find out what that stuff is, right. be, it, be it some pollen from a specific area right. or, um, yeah. you know, residue from munitions of some type. Exactly. Well, just so people know, uh, the treatment of these flags was, uh, it, it's not cheap. No, it doesn't come cheap because as you, because it's a meticulous, time-consuming task. Right. Um, 
Band-Aids and pantyhose are not cheap <laughs> in large quantities. Um, so, you know, it takes a lot of resources to do this. And the way that our museum was able to fund um, the, the conservation of these two flags was um, um, through the Save the Flags project, which is a fund here at the museum that we're using to treat these flags. And that was done in conjunction with a grant that we received from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. So, um, you know, thanks to IMLS and the Save the Flags project, we were able to uh, to make these flags available to the public. That's right, saving a very cool part of our history. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And the Museum's Assistant Director, Rebecca Martin. Hi. This week's challenge was to connect William Allen White to the television sitcom Three's Company. Uh, let me just give you a little background on Three's Company. The show ran from 1977 to 1984. 1977, that was a good year. Um, that was the year <laughs> I was born. born then? Oh, okay. <laughs> the show was based on the adventures that are sure to take place if one swinging bachelor lived with two single <laughs> women. And it was actually based on a, an earlier British version, I believe, of the same, you know, Brilliant plot. <laughs> the show starred actor John Ritter as Jack Tripper, uh, Joyce DeWitt as Janet Wood, and Suzanne Somers as Chrissy Snow. Although, to clarify, there were other actresses that later replaced um, Suzanne Somers. Um, but Joyce DeWitt and John Ritter, they stuck with it through the whole thing. Rebecca, um, I believe uh, you may be aware of a solution, a way to connect Three's Company to uh, William Allen White. Yes, uh, we have our one of our favorite listeners, Nick from Emporia, who has a solution. And I'm going to quote Nick. He says, this one may be a bit of a stretch. Okay, and aside, Nick, they're always a stretch to connect William Allen White to these things. Uh, and Nick continues, but Three's Company starred Don Knotts as Mr. Furley. Knotts played in a stage version of Neil Simon's Odd Couple opposite Art Carney. Simon's first Broadway play debuted at the Brooks Atkin Atkinson Theater, named after Brooks Atkinson, the renowned theater critic. Atkinson received a Pulitzer in 1947 for some writing he did while in Moscow. And, of course, as our listeners know, William Allen White won two Pulitzers, 1923 and 1946. And the 46th one was after he'd been, uh, he'd passed away two years earlier. That uh, was for his autobiography. So, there you go. It's pretty Three's good when you can win a Pulitzer. After you've been dead, dead two years. Two years, yeah. Uh, so there you go. It's uh, one, two, three, four, five degrees from Nick. Three's company to Don Knotts, to Neil Simon, to Brooks Atkinson, to the Pulitzer Prize, to William Allen White. Well, Rebecca, would you like to reveal the challenge for the next episode? Yes, I'll bet you can't figure this one out. In the next episode, we bring out the high rollers as we attempt to connect William Allen White to the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, baby. <laughs> this 50s-era hotel was famous for being the virtual home to the Rat Pack. Mm. Yeah. So, if you think uh, you have the inside track on the connection between William Allen White and the Sands Hotel, we want to hear from you. Send us your chain of connection to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 51, Flagged. 
If you'd like to see images of the flags carried by the 1st Kansas Battery and the 2nd Kansas Cavalry, go to our website, kshs.org, and search for Save the Flags Project. Join us in two weeks when we examine another relic from the Civil War. On April 14, 1865, the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln triggered a manhunt. Turned out, John Wilkes Booth wasn't alone. He had compatriots, and together they formed a conspiracy. You'll find out the fate of these conspirators when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman examines a piece of wood that greatly altered their plans. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. No, no, no.